Hello once again. Welcome to the latest edition of the Non-Traditional Scholar Podcast. Your host, Jan, here with you today. Ready to get into a fresh new episode on one story. Very unique, very non-traditional, and very powerful. So, in this episode, before I introduce you all to the interviewee and their story, I'd like for all of you to imagine yourselves at a point in your life where you felt like you hit rock bottom, the lowest of the low, and you felt helpless, nowhere to turn, purely dark, and um, at a point in your life where you just wanted to give up and you failed. Think of what and when and where and why. Think of all of the W's and think of how bad you felt when you spent time in your rock bottom. Now, the next question you might be anticipating is how you went from rock bottom and turned the corner and found a way out. Unfortunately, that's not the next question. You see, the next question I have for you is, how would you feel if you were at your rock bottom and from your rock bottom, the floor gave out and you went lower? So just when you thought you hit your worst floor and the lowest of your low, you weren't there. And as a matter of fact, you from there had to experience far worse than where you were. Talk about a gut punch. Talk about feeling like the wind was sucked out of your lungs and you're gasping for air underwater, drowning. And instead of going towards the surface, you're being drowned further and further and deeper and deeper into the dark blue sea. Well, what I just described for you to imagine is what you are about to hear someone actually face. Now, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, there is a disclaimer that I'd like to state that this story will discuss graphic details and um, will be very intense in terms of the testimony. But I assure you, riding through the storm will allow you to see how this person's rock bottom also became their guiding light. So without further ado, please enjoy and take heed into the story that we're about to get into and unpack. And I'll see you at the end. Let's begin. So hello, my friend. How are you? How are you? Fine, fine, fine. Thank you for taking the time and sharing your story and your testimony with the podcast. To get the audience a little bit more acquainted with who you are, could you please introduce yourself and uh, what you're doing currently? Uh, my name is Emmanuel Hernandez. I'm currently uh, finishing my AA and Mass Communications at MDC. MDC. And why Mass Communications? I wanted to effectively learn to communicate 
uh, my story. I wanted to learn different uh, different avenues of, let's say, social media, journalism, and things like that that are going to help me on my new mission in life. New mission? Yes, sir. So before we get to the new mission, um, what was the first mission or the old mission? So all my life, I wanted to be in the military since I was uh, a little baby. Yeah. I used to dress up. I uh, I loved playing with, with toys that had to do with the military and... All my life, I, I, I wanted to be in the military. So at 18 years old, I joined the Navy as a military police officer. Great. And my life, I felt at that time that, that my mission was to to fight for people who couldn't fight for themselves and, and defend those who couldn't defend themselves. Thank you for your service. Thank you. Thank you for your, how long were you in the military? I did nine years and three months. Nine years. Yes, sir. Nine years. And how was your experience during that time? Well, I did, during that time, I was active in reserve, so I got to live a little bit of, of uh, the civilian life as well as the military life. Now, that is difficult because that job is not a job, it's a, it's a life. So they don't just train you in your job, they train you in, in every aspect of it. So being in the military and then being home, it's kind of difficult because it's, it's, two, it's two lives that you're living. But being in the military was good. They are. Uh, they trained me a lot. Of, uh, they trained me in law enforcement, and I got a uh, combat uh, training as well. Okay. And so, during that time, you were able to travel. I did. I made. Uh, I had a deployment in Kuwait. Kuwait. I had a deployment in Kuwait. We spent a little time in Germany, and we ended up coming back. And we got to see a little bit of hostile, uh, hostile things. This was in 2011. So this was when Iran was doing a lot of a lot of threatening in the water. So. A lot of things were going on around that time. Okay. To do with the threat level. Okay. So you were based with the majority of the time in Kuwait dealing with that circumstance. On my on my deployment, I did. Now prior to that I was based in Jacksonville. Jack uh, my, my unit was in Jacksonville and I was in a maritime expeditionary security unit. Okay. So we got to do more more combat related things that regular law enforcement doesn't do. Okay. Okay. How was your experience there? It was good. I actually, uh, I got awarded a Coast Guard Meritorious Award. I got, first I, I was a, a Quick Reaction Force member, which is like a SWAT team member. So we got to do security for the oil platforms and I got to train Iraqi soldiers on uh, small arms and things like that. When we did the transition from doing their security for uh, their security on the oil platform to them doing their own security. I see. So I did that. Once that was completed, then I got uh, selected to be a convoy commander. So because I have a strong security background and I got put in the in the vehicle, it, it was a punishment. They sent me to the vehicle department to learn about vehicles. But because I was such a uh, an expert in security, they said, hey, why don't we use you as a commander? So it was bad when my unit saw, they were like, wow, he got promoted. <laughs> and I was actually in charge of a lot of missions that saved the government a lot of money. Okay. And I got that medal. Okay. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, so nine years, nine years, three months. Yes, sir. Can you take me to the moment where you arrived at that decision to close that chapter of your military career and well, transition into something else? Let me tell you how funny this is. So I did on my deployment and I came back in 2012. In 2014, while on the reserve, I got a security job uh, working at a club here in Miami. And that's when I ended up getting shot. Oh. Um, it was a, a night that it was a night of Halloween of 2014. And um, there was a drive-by shooting. Oh, my God. Uh, the story gets longer, but the, um, the bullet went in through the top of my shoulder, through my neck, and it hit the, the back of my right clavicle. And the bullet got stuck in there. If anybody knows about guns, I got shot with a forty-four caliber. It's a huge bullet. And 
have pictures and x-rays and stuff to show how big that was. So I'm very lucky to be alive. But that there, dealing with the PTSD from war and dealing from the PTSD from there, you could assume how my life went down. Too. I see. I so, see. Very traumatic. Uh, yes, sir. Very, very traumatic. And around that time, my dad died. I got uh, I got married and separated immediately and going through that. So it was a lot of, a lot of things in 2014 that my life kind of kept crumbling down. And then I got a DUI. It was a lot of things at one time. Then it was, it seemed to me that it was the darkest moment of my life, but it, it wasn't even close. It was really life literally was preparing me for what was next. Wow. So at that time, the military was frowned upon, like they were frowning upon me, but they're like, oh, you know, you're out there getting in trouble, but I'm out there getting in trouble. Why? I'm out there getting in trouble because I have PTSD because I've been shot and the circumstances It's not that I'm looking for it, but they usually give you the helping hand when it's a little late. Right. And that's, and that's what happened. So that wasn't your first time ever getting shot? That was, yeah. That was. That was the first time. That was my first time, and I hopefully the last. The last. Yeah. The last. How old were you in 2014? 2014, he 24. 24 years old. No, sir. And you mentioned how you thought you hit rock bottom, but that was preparing you for what was next. Yes, sir. So what was next? Huh. So um, I had a supervisor that I don't understand why, where we went wrong. Instead of helping me, he did everything in his, in his power to try to get me out of the military. And he wanted to get me out of the military so bad. Um, I ended up going to a, a uh, like a court a court hearing, and I beat it. So I beat it, which ended up getting all my benefits. Like I, I remained with everything because I um at that time I had signed for another term of eight years. I already did my eight year contract. I signed for another eight years, and coincidentally, it was around that time that they were kicking me out. I see. So they were trying to push me out, and I came out victorious. But and getting out of the military. I, well, after getting shot, I ended up moving to Texas. Uh, when I moved to Texas, I was already route of getting out of the military. I ended up meeting a girl on a flight. And at that time, I'm recovering from a gunshot. Um, I left my family behind. I didn't know anybody in Texas. I moved just to get away. And honestly, I felt like I was a burden for many years dealing with PTSD. It seems like I've been hurt so many times. And this is just the surface. There's been a motorcycle accident in between those years. Uh, the DUI, I lost my car, a total loss. So it's been a lot of deficits at this point in my life. So I'm in, I'm in Texas. I meet a girl. I end up, we end up getting married. She's a flight attendant. We end up getting married. And I felt at the time it was a good thing. From Texas, I end up in, in, in New Jersey, where I'm originally from. Now I'm completely out of the military. But two weeks out of the military, I leave a bar. I end up in a, in a quick check. As I'm exiting the quick check, there's a car, a, a police officer by my car. And his question is, is this your car? Mind you, I have no idea what I've done at this moment, at, at this point. So I asked the officer, I tell the officer, I'm a law enforcement officer, I'm a Leo. He proceeds to say, to the right. And, we're, and I'm facing the officer. Car's facing to the right, car's facing the store, and the store is to the right. So I walk by the officer. The officer drew his gun, uh, tried to grab me. I pushed him off. I got in my car. Now, I remember my objective was just to be safe. So as soon as I sat in the car, the doors, the doors closed and the doors locked. When I turned to the right, there's two other officers hitting my car with batons. Now, why is there three officers? What did I do? And I'm very confused at this moment, and I'm not trying to ask any. It sounds like they're not trying to ask any questions either. So in this moment, I turn my car on, I reverse, and I exit. As I'm exiting, they have blocked off the entrance to that, uh, to that little mall. 
So since they blocked off the entrance a little, the little more where the, the quick check is, um, I had to hit the cop car right in between the middle to open up enough to, to have my car go. Wow. But then got to have the training to do that. So I did that as I'm ex as I'm leaving, as I'm hitting the main street, there's a cop car already behind me in pursuit. So understand how this looks from a law enforcement perspective. I'm already in pursuit. They already drew their weapons. They haven't seen a weapon on me. So all these things I have to analyze immediately. And what I felt in the moment was danger. You pointed a gun at me. My life is in danger. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter at this point who you are because later on it came out that, oh, you know, they're a uniform officer. I understand that. But a uniform officer isn't going to come super aggressive. Exactly. And he shouldn't. He shouldn't come super aggressive. With his weapon drawn. With his weapon drawn. So I fast forward. Um, in the car, these officers are behind me. I hear gunshots. Really? I heard gunshots. They swore up and down that there was no gunshots. I heard gunshots. Now I have an option. Though I'm not trying to run away. I can try to flee out of sports car. I didn't. I wanted to get to a safe place. So my I was renting a room in a in a house in a basement, uh, which was a block and a half away. So I ended up going. This is a one way street. So I left the car in the middle of the street. I left the car in the middle of the street. I'm going into the property. The property is really dark. The main street. They have a light in the street, but the whole house. It's dark and the backyard is dark. I can't go in through the main entrance because there's too many keys. There's a house and uh, the houses up north are split. So if the house is split, they have to have different keys to go in, you know, for the safety of everybody. So I knew I couldn't go in through the front entrance because they're right behind. So I'm going in through the backyard and it's super dark. And as I'm going in, I can't see the door. So I'm trying to get my cell phone and try to see the door because it's really dark. As I'm doing all this to try to get inside my, my, my apartment, uh, police officers are right there with, the, with their guns drawn. North Bergen police and flashlights. So I pulled my weapon and I shot three times. Boom, boom, boom. I shot um, warning shots. So it was a tight grouping. I was three feet away from them. And I really didn't try to kill them. I didn't try to hurt anybody. I just wanted to get to a safe place. They returned fire and they, and they left uh, back through, the, uh, through where we entered from through the hallway. So I entered my own. Um, the room in the, in, in the basement. First thing I do is call 911. I had an hour and a half phone call with this police officer. He was a lieutenant, and I explained to him who I was. I suffer from PTSD. I don't want to hurt myself. I don't want to hurt anybody else. I explained to him that I have weapons um, that are mine. I haven't committed any crime. I haven't done anything. I don't know why they're after me. And my family is well-known in that town. So This is New Jersey. This is New Jersey. This is West New York, New Jersey. Well, my family is well-known. I felt that I should tell this guy, you know, who I am and, 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 and who my family is and things like that. It's a small, it's a small town and my family is well-known there. This guy and me had a good, I felt like we had a good, a, a good connection. He understood I wasn't trying to hurt anybody, but I felt he was in control, but he wasn't. So as he's telling me to exit, I'm seeing footsteps coming in. I don't have a window, but I have basically like a little hole that I can see outside. So I'm seeing footsteps and if you're coming into the backyard there's no exit there so you're coming in to come inside the property so from my experience if that's what you're already doing and at that time there's so many footsteps coming that way they're not coming to talk so i hung up the phone i told the officer i was going to call my mom my mom's in doral and i'm in new jersey and that point my my father already passed away i have uncles there so i know whatever trouble i'm going to get into the only person that's going to help me is my mother i told the officer this the officer is not letting me hang up and 
I ended up hanging up the phone. I had a tactical shotgun that I bought and I felt, you know what, they're going to come in any second and kill me. So at this moment in life, I said, you know what, I'm just, I'm, I'm ready for whatever. Wow. So I didn't even call my mom. I didn't call anybody. I, I sat there with the shotgun in my legs in the bed and I had the, the pistol I had in my pocket. And I said, if they come in, it is what it is. So I ended up falling asleep. I had all the adrenaline and I have, I have like a day and a half without sleeping and all the adrenaline, I fell asleep. Wow. I got woken up with bullhorns and they were evacuating the town. They were evacuating people in the block. And all of a sudden I hear bullhorns and I hear boom. And they threw a tear gas bomb inside. You're a student. Uh, they are in the room. It's a non-ventilated area. So a tear, uh, tear gas is going to go all around. So it goes all around. I've been in gas tanks before, but I've had masks. I've, and I've been pepper sprayed before because of the law enforcement. But this, there's nothing you can do to train for this. So this is something that I'm hyperventilating. I'm going crazy. And in a matter of 12 hours, they shot 17 bombs. Inside? Inside. So you could imagine now what that does to you, all your body. I remember urinating and my body parts started feeling later. So um, they had FBI, Homeland Security. They had 235 cops outside my house. Oh, God. That, this is all on Google. This is all Google. All the story is, 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 is there by exactly how I'm saying it. And wow. they had 235 cops outside my house. They used my mom as a hostage negotiator. They knocked on her door in the row. The Doral Police Department, your son, this came out on national news. The people in the Navy base knew. When they called it in the radio, they called it that the cops got shot. It wasn't that they got shot at. No, no one got hurt. The way they put it out, it was like that. Anyway, I ended up leaving my room. I left my room. I have the shotgun there, and I see all these robots. I haven't left my room at this point. And this is uh, the morning. This is when they woke me up. So I, I open. I'm coming out. Now, there's a hallway. There's the entrance that I came in through the backyard, and there's an entrance to the house. So these are two entrances that I have to be careful for because if they come in, they're going to shoot. They know I'm armed. They saw what I had because they have robots, so they saw the tactical shotgun, and they knew if they came in, what was waiting for me. And I knew what was waiting for me. So thank God that that didn't happen. The mayor was on the, uh, on the phone with me. And I remember the mayor telling me, oh, you know, they're only shooting bombs because you didn't pick up the phone. I'm like, I'm on the phone with you. They just shot a bomb. Wow. So this is not accurate what you're saying. And um, my mom was the one that saved my life. My mom called me repeatedly. I didn't want to talk because when you're somebody that's trained and you're in combat or you're in a situation and your mind is on goal, there's nothing that's going to take you out of that. Your mind is on goal. At that moment in life, I was ready to die. I hadn't done anything. And I got pushed to the edge, and I felt, I felt I got pushed to the edge, and I felt I had to fight back. So I had to fight for my life. Right. And my mom called me. She said that I didn't hurt anybody, that she didn't want to see me die on TV, that she will never abandon me, that if I surrender, she will never abandon me, and that she's going to get me out of that. And <laughs> she did. The whole town was there, <laughs> helicopters, every news channel. That you can imagine. Um, I go out. I remember seeing the mayor there with my uncle. Oh, he passed now, but somebody big in that town at that time. So they let him there, my uncle there in the scene with the mayor. So imagine everything is cut off and there's nothing but police officers there. So um, I had other family that they saw me and I ended up going. They took me to Jersey City homicide. I'm not understanding why I'm going to homicide. So I go, they sit me down and they read these charges and they're like, oh, attempted murder, attempted murder. He said, attempted murder, attempted murder, aggravated assault in the first degree and three more charges, eluding with the risk of death, unlawful possession of a weapon, unlawful possession of a weapon, 
and then resisting arrest with violence. I had seven charges. Seven. So I'm reading these and I know what this is. I'm not understanding why I got these charges, but I read them. I didn't say anything. They, they asked me, oh, you know, this is where we can help. They're not trying to help anybody. So I said, no, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to answer anybody. The next day when I go see the judge, I'm thinking I'm going to go home because I don't have any prior record and they don't even have a bail system in Jersey. It's a point system. I see. Let me tell you how the system works. They, all they need is a justification, a triangle for you not to leave. So they said that they found guns, drugs, and money in my house. The guns were under my name that I bought at the store. Legal guns. The drugs were from the VA. It could literally been like migraine medication. Prescription. Prescription. And then the money is from the bank <laughs> that I have receipts for. You get me? USA A bank. Like, what did I do wrong? So they didn't let me go. Now I had to fight my case from the county. Mind you, I'm not a street guy. You see me, I'm a big guy. I went in there at 250, thank God. Thank God that I went in there kind of prepared for what's to come. But imagine this, I'm in a max tier. So everyone in there is for homicide and attempted murder. But there's not really a lot of attempted murders. It was two of us. I got 140 people. It was two of us for attempted murder. Now, if you know about jail, it's by counties. So where I'm from, it's not that big in, in, in Jersey. So when you're there in a max tier, just think about it. If they're there for murder and it's not a big place, it's more than likely you killed somebody that someone knows there. So it's a war zone going in there. So just to use the phone, just to use the phone, excuse me, uh, who has next on that phone? Oh, my friend has next on that phone. Oh, excuse me, who has next? So when you come, you see everybody has next on the phone. They're not going to let you use the phone. And it's because they don't know you. Mm. Nobody really needs to use the phone because they don't know you. They don't know you and they want to test you. Now, what I tell people Nowadays, I come from a good family. Family lives in Doral. They're business people. My stepdad is an electronic engineer. I actually traveled a lot more prior to joining the military. I've, I've been to a lot of schools internationally, American schools internationally. So understand, me going into this problem with my family being involved, they don't, they're not really part of that life. So me going into this jail, I don't know what's going on in the street. I don't know about gangs. I don't know about anything. And it's really easy to go in jail. It was very easy. I saw police officers in jail. I saw lawyers in jail. I saw a pastor in jail. Really? A pastor in jail. So understand there's sizes in every Yeah. Now, being in there, you have to be in my case, you had I had to be aggressive. There is no way around that. It gets to a point where you have people that come from all all parts of all parts of the world and they're used to they're used to different things. So sometimes talking is not an option. It's not an option. Anyway, I ended up going to trial. Um, my mom hired a a very 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 good lawyer. Um, I ended up going to trial and I beat I beat the the two attempted murders. Really? Um, and I beat the first degree aggravated assault, which he, the cop said I ran over his foot. So they wanted to give me first degree for that. And first degree, it would have been twenty, twenty, and twenty. Oh. So I was facing life in prison. That matter of fact, the only offer they gave me, because they have to give you offers so you can say, okay, I accept this offer so we don't have to go to trial. They never gave me an offer. The last offer, which is the first and only offer, was life in prison. It was something unheard of. Life in prison is somebody that's like killed a whole bunch of people. Not one, a whole bunch. A serial murderer. A serial murderer. And I know people that were in the max tier that, that were accused of four bodies and they didn't offer them life. Wow. They didn't even offer me 100 years. He said life in prison. 
So obviously at this point, I'm like, wow, this is crazy. Life in prison. And I didn't even hurt anybody. No one got hurt. So I, I, I accepted that. And then they said, okay, you either sign for life, sign for life in prison now or go to trial. And if you go to trial and you lose, you get up to 85 years. So with life. odds and everything against me, no, the risk is what happened in trial. Understand there was 235 cops up. They want to make me look like the worst person in the world. They didn't do their homework to see that I was a cop in the Navy. They didn't really do their homework. They, they felt that they had a strong enough case. Like I woke up that day and just snapped. That's not what happened, but that's how they wanted to see. So they had such a case built that it was me against the police. I had all the odds against me. And every day in trial, I thought I was going to lose. And it was going to be my last day on this earth. It was going to be my last day of free. being able to fight wow. for my freedom. Not even free because I wasn't free. Right. But I had my family come in. Mind you, I had five witnesses. Out of those five witnesses, I had a psychiatrist. I had me, my mom, my sister. They weren't even there. They had 50 witnesses. And 50 because they were not allowed to do more. This is a speedy trial. And out of those 50, they had to pick. They picked the highest ranking people of each department experts they had all if if you ever heard the audio you you would see how 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 unfair this trial was the prosecutor there had a paper where he wanted me to read the highlighted things in the paper i can make you read any paper and if i make you read the highlighted things what i want you it could sound completely different four hours of destroying so then we take a break and as we're about to take a break the judge is like oh look mr hernandez let me tell you how, let me tell you how God works. I would have lost that trial. He had me there. He was killing me, killing me because there was nothing I could do. There was nothing, of, there was no way of talking out of this. He's asking me questions. I don't remember is my answer to everything Then he's making me read a conversation, a conversation I had with that cop. But in that conversation I had with that cop, there's a lot of things that were said, but if he's making me say what he wants me to read, understand I can't say the whole thing. So in one of the questions, it was like, oh, you know, uh, one of the questions like, you know, what happened here? Something like that. I read one part of it, but the next part of it was literally like downplaying that or explaining it. And he didn't let me read that. Right. And as I continue reading it, he's like, no, 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 just a highlight. And I'm like, oh my God, this isn't really, historic. I'm looking at the judge. I'm like, this is not right. And these people are looking at me and this is my life. So if you're going to take my life away, let it at least be fair. If I deserve that, because there is people that deserve that, I deserve it 100%. Take it from me. But I'm not above the law. But make it right. They didn't. They sat there and they lied. They said that the muzzle flash uh, was getting increased. Mind you, it's dark. So when you shoot, there's a fire that comes up. That's a muzzle flash. Mind you, how do I know this? I am an expert in this. They didn't know this. The officer said that the muzzle flash kept increasing, meaning I'm running towards he is a liar. If I ran towards him and I had 15 rounds in my gun, 15 rounds, why did I stop shooting at three? Matter of fact, I had another whole weapon downstairs. The right. Why didn't I go get it? Like, if this was my intention, why did I stop? So that was one of the most traumatiz traumatizing things in my life. Not just that, not just the whole action thing that happened, um, but what happened afterwards. Because dealing with that every day, dealing with that in the county every day, going to court for 12 hours and they feed you a bologna sandwich, knowing that it could be literally the last time that you fight for this. Right. Once, you, once you're stuck with that, once you're stuck with that sentence, you're stuck with that sentence. It could be the rest of your life that you fight that and you don't get out of prison. So I got sentenced to seven years. They gave me seven years for running the officer's foot. They gave me a second degree aggravated assault for that. Um, they gave me 
all the charges, they just ran the highest one, which was that one, the second degree aggravated assault. And then they ran the rest together. Then the prosecutor was even asking, oh, oh, your honor, I just want half. Give him 15 years. And the judge stood up and said, you know, for people like him, you can feel safe in your job. So we're asking us on an app. But then with me, he was like, oh, I thought I was going to go home. I already did two years. And the officer, the, um, the judge said, no. He said that the mandatory minimum, he, like, he can't give me less than that. So the mandatory minimum for a second degree is seven. So they gave me seven years around with 85% of that, which was five years, 11 months, and 12 days. And then they gave me an eight-month credit because of COVID. So I did five years and three months. Wow. So after being a military police officer for nine years and three months, I ended up being an inmate for five years and three months. Wow. Remember what I said at the beginning of this episode? How would you feel if what you thought was your rock bottom? How would you feel if that floor of your rock bottom gave out and you went lower and you had to deal with far worse than what you thought was the worst that you would ever experience. Imagine going from being in the military, making your family proud, having everyone thank you for your courage and your bravery to now coming back home and spending the better part of five years of your life behind bars. Imagine the stress and the emotional trauma that you would have to feel in transforming from one identity to the other. Tough man. But throughout the testimony that Emmanuel has been expressing and explaining to us in this episode, something that takes form and takes shape was how Emmanuel was not going to allow his rock bottom to drown him. In other words, how did those five years and how did that experience catapult Emmanuel into his new mission and what he's pursuing today? How did he go from the rock bottom to now fighting for others and trying to live as a guiding light? Well, let Emmanuel explain that transformation himself. First of all, I want to apologize, sir. You having to go through that. I don't. I don't think it's possible for people to even experience or envision themselves in a situation like that. I just want to explain a little bit of you know? mindset because when somebody hears this story, they don't understand how they can relate. Now. You don't have to be shot or you don't have to lose everything to feel like you hit rock bottom. And being in a cell with somebody that's a murderer, sleeping with murderers, understand like how difficult this is to be put in a place where it's literally like a nightmare. And, and then thinking you're going to be there for the rest of your life. You think suicide ran through my mind, thinking how it was a disappointment to my family, thinking how 
my family went from looking at me as a hero to being a, for me being a disappointment. Um, I really wanted to end my life. I didn't want to go through that. And every single day I was losing hair and getting fatter, getting depressed and seeing my mom, literally my mom aged so much during this process because of the stress. And it sucks that when they, when the government had a chance to do something, they didn't, um, the VA went, they did an interview and they said, you know, we're going to try to do everything in our power because there's a veteran court, there's things and there's different laws. But because this happened in the state of New Jersey and they have the No Early Release Act, it ended up happening to me. If this would have happened in Florida, this would have happened in Miami, I wouldn't have done a day in jail. No one got hurt and there's a veteran's court. So I could have probably had another chance that hopefully there was no other court people had. No. And the crazy thing is the prisons are packed with veterans. There's a whole unit filled with veterans. And there's veterans that come home that get into substance abuse, can get in a fight, can do anything so small. And, 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 and going that place. So there should be more programs. There should be more things available to stop these things from happening. And I felt that I went through what I went through. So I can help, I can help people that are dealing with depression. I can help with people that are dealing with anxiety. I can help people that feel like there's no way out because for a long time, I felt like there was no way out. Now, when I got shot, it's funny because, um, I saved my own life. I got shot, I told you, in the top of my left shoulder, the bullet went in through my uh, through my clavicle, and I was the one that called. I called my mom first, then I called 911. And as I'm going to the front of the place, I asked for a stack of napkins. So I held the napkins with my right hand on top of my shoulder, and I had my pistol in my left hand because I felt the threat wasn't over. These people can come back and shoot. Thank God to all the training that I have, and that's why I told you missions change. You know, I felt like my my job from doing bodyguarding, executive protection, law enforcement, security in the military. I felt like my life was always to protect. And I felt like I was never, I'm not scared of anything. I'm not scared of death. I'm not scared of fighting. I'm not scared of guns. I'm not scared of nothing. But I'm putting myself at risk. I've been hurt and hurt and hurt. And it got to a point where I feel like my mission was complete. I have saved lives. I have made a difference. And now my mission is no longer to fight physically. Now it's a fight, I feel, to fight for the better, to fight these diseases, to fight these obstacles. And in the year that I came home, I've lost 65 pounds. I'm almost done with my degree. And I'm in process of starting a nonprofit organization. So I want to help veterans uh, coming back home, transitioning from prison, and people that are transitioning from prison, or avoiding. My ultimate goal is avoiding people that can have a second chance to not go down. Because once you're in and your record is damaged, there's really nothing. Now I came back home, thank God that I'm 100% disabled with the with the VA. They gave me the 100% when I came home. So I was 50% disabled for PTSD. This is a PTSD related incident. So I had to lose five years of my life for them to realize, oh, you know, maybe your PTSD was really bad. So now for the rest of my life, I'm gonna be looked at as a danger when it's not true. Right. And I'm being looked at as something that I'm not. And I have so much assets and, and, and positive things to build. And I feel like I have to create my, I have to create my own way. And I want to create a path for these people. I want to create a path for these people because I feel that people that make mistakes, if they could recover, we can make the world a better place. Of course. So we don't keep repeating mistakes. And we will keep going down this hill. So I'd like to ask you something specific. You mentioned your diagnosis of PTSD. 
Can you talk a little bit about how that affected you throughout that chapter of your life and how you're dealing with it now? So I have problems sleeping. Um, PTSD, it hits people in different ways. To me, it's my nightmares. Um, there's been a lot of times, uh, there's been several occasions in my life where my life is almost taken from me or situations where I've been outgunned or situations where I couldn't respond. Like, for example, when I got shot, I couldn't shoot back. Right. And these are things that are detrimental to somebody like me because these are losses that are hard. These are hard things to swallow. It's hard as a person to swallow that some damage was done to you and you couldn't defend yourself or do anything. You felt helpless. Felt helpless. So that helpless feeling is a feeling that I never want to feel again. So it's something that makes me hypervigilant. It makes me um, be always aware of my surrounding. It makes it to where anybody in my vicinity, my mind, it works. It, it just works a lot faster. So whoever is in my vicinity, immediately I have to see whether they're a threat or not. And if they are a threat, how I'm going to neutralize the threat. Wow. Now on a daily basis, that's a lot. There's a lot of people in the world. And there's a lot of people I have to encounter going to school. On a day-to-day basis. Day-to-day basis. So when I see a cop, I don't see a friendly guy now. Now I see a potential enemy. When I see a person coming at me, I don't see, no, I see a potential enemy. But you met me and you see him. I'm courteous. I'm, now, that's that's who I've been always. And one thing I can pride myself is the same man that I was in the military, is the same man that's, that goes to church on Sundays, is the same man that's in prison. I fight for what I believe in and I fight for what's right. I fought, I fought in jail for the rights of uh, the Hispanics, for them to watch TV in Spanish because a lot of people don't speak Spanish and they had more than enough TVs, and, and I fought, physically fought for them. I physically fought for people getting story and getting bullied. And if I did that all my life, I feel, I'm in, I feel I'm, I'm in a good place and I feel that I'm gonna be equipped to help in the upcoming challenges. How did you not lose that characteristic of who you are? How were you able to sustain that trait? You, in, in my case, I don't like someone to pick and choose. So if you're going to be one way, be one way. Authentic. Authentic. Don't be one way in a certain situation and then be one way in another situation. Going to prison, you have rules and there's consequences that people don't live with on a daily basis. There's a thing, there's a respect, and there's a, 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 a line that people forget. People forget that there's consequences. You think you can go around the world disrespecting people or crossing the line or breaking the law, like, Something is old, something is going to happen to you sooner or later, and and me too. So, when you learn how to respect and you and you learn to respect the other person, respect their opinions, and respect the way they think, it might not be the way you think, but as long as it doesn't affect you personally, it doesn't matter. So that's what I have to learn. Because understand, when you go to a place where it literally is a jump, you have people that are drug addicts, people that are thieves, people that are rapists, people that are murderers. There's all the people I was around. At first, I was all around murderers, but then when I got sentenced, I wasn't around murderers anymore. Now I'm around all sorts of people. So dealing with these people or dealing with people that are not from your background is a difficult thing and you have to learn how to adapt. You can't treat everybody the same or expect everybody to understand the same thing or to respond the same. Remember the TV thing or the phone? Yeah. The phone, oh, I need the phone. Okay, there might be somebody that says, here, have it, and nobody has it. There might be somebody that wants to test. So you have to decide whether you're going to live your life Every day like a coward, or you're going to be a man? Because if you live every day like a coward, your five years are going to be 50 years. 
and retrospect. Right. You're not going to live the life that you want to live. You're not going to watch what you want to watch. You're not going to talk on the phone. You want to talk on the phone. Your life is going to be super uncomfortable and is already uncomfortable. So that's one thing that I feel, I guess, separates me from the rest. If I have an opinion or I have a suggestion, I'm not scared to share it. So, Emmanuel, when did school come into the picture as a, 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 a pursuit and an opportunity for you to build off of what you went through? So prior, I first started as um, I wanted to do uh, criminal justice. I was a military police officer. I wanted to do criminal justice. So I started that early, I want to say maybe 2014. Um, I started the school and I stopped because of the military. I went away uh, for a couple months and coincidentally, I got here a little late and I stopped. After I got shot in 2015, I said, oh, I'm going to change my major to business because I felt, you know, after getting shot, I don't want to do... I don't want to do law enforcement. I don't want to work with guns anymore. I kind of want to change my career. In 2017, I was going to school in, in New Jersey. So I had left Miami-Dade. I went, uh, I went to Texas. Then in Jersey, I ended up, uh, I was finishing my, um, my, my AA in business. When I ended up going to prison and coming back home, I had a lot of time to think. And I saw when my mission changed and I felt that I wanted to go into sharing my story and I wanted to help and go in another direction is when I changed my degree. So I changed my degree to communications as soon as I came home, which actually everything went to my benefit. So I'm almost done with that. Were you able to study or were there any resources uh, within your time, the five years that you were in prison? Was there anything that helped you productively? I read a lot of uh, help books. Oh, I had to be emotionally uh, intelligent, which is what I was going through. I wish that I would have taken time to actually learn something else. Coincidentally, uh, because of COVID, or unfortunately, because of COVID, um, a lot of resources and things were shut down. So when the prison is open, teachers can come and colleges come, and a lot of people that have a lot of time can go to school. Um, that was not my option. So when I went in there, I went into a program where it was like substance abuse, and it was good because I got to learn different things about that, which I didn't have a problem with, but I learned and it was a, a, a transitioning period. And you mentioned your new mission, your mission, how it's pivoted towards helping people. Yes, sir. Right. Um, you're about to grab, graduate with your AA. Yes, sir. Once you earn your AA, uh, what's next? So I want to get my bachelor's degree. I'm undecided on what, uh, what avenue to take. But with my degree now, I want to be part of an organization that I'm helping build now and be the representative from that, of that organization. So like I said, this is a veteran transition organization. So they're going to need somebody to go and share a story because there has to be a success story, right? There has to be a success story. And I feel that my story, I haven't found the happy ending and I'm working towards that. Right. So I'm working towards the happy ending so I can conclude my book and God willing, it could be this degree or it could be the upcoming projects. But once I get the happy ending, um, that's what I'm working towards now. Fantastic. Do you have any regrets? Yes, sir. Many. Um, prior to a lot of these incidents happening, it's like life tried to guide me in other directions. But my regret, my main regret is not accepting things for what they are. My regret is fighting them and not accepting them. If I would have accepted that sentence that my time would have been a lot better. If I would have accepted the fact that I got shot, if I would accept these things. It's a different thing when you accept it, like, okay, this happened to me and I'm going to work with it, 
then you're not accepting it. Like, okay, this happened to me, but I'm upset. I'm mad. I'm angry. This makes me feel irritable. This makes me feel anxious. These are all things that are negative. So if you say, okay, that's how that makes me feel, but I'm going to overcome, then you go. Now, we never pick when we fall, but we always pick when we get up. That's true. So when I was facing all this time, facing or in, in my deathbed, because um, I, when I got shot, literally, I didn't tell you that part. Um, that was my first ho- helicopter trip. So when the ambulance came, they took me in a helicopter to Jackson Trauma. And as I'm getting there, remember I told you where the bullet went, right? Through your there's, no, there's no exit. Mm-hmm. There was no exit. So when I get there, I remember them cutting my pants. I remember getting mad because we were $100 pants that I just bought <laughs> to do security. And uh, I asked the doctor, I was like, hey, doc, then I'm going to make it. And the doctor said to me, if you believe in God, this is where you would pray. Because I don't know where the bullet, the bullet entered through here. It could have hit your heart. It could have hit so many different things. And I don't know. So from him telling me that and putting me in a machine for 45 minutes, I understand the level. So I've been through, I've been through a lot. I see. There's no, there's no bad that doesn't come with good. Right. And had I not lost those five years or, or. Had I not been through that situation, I wouldn't be where I'm at today, which is I have a clear mind. I have peace in my heart. And I know that PTSD, I know the consequences to my actions. And I know that acting impulsively or finding excuses is the easiest thing. I'm here to find solutions. That's fantastic. So I got two more questions. Let's say you have a 16, 17, 18-year-old teenager about to finish high school. They're thinking about signing up and joining the military. Um, what are some words of advice or suggestions that you have for somebody who is on the verge of deciding to sign up and start that chapter in their life? My number one suggestion is think about the future. Don't think about the now. Because what seems exciting now, it's not going to seem exciting in 10 years. So I say that because my experience shooting guns, the first two years, it was amazing. Then after that, it just gets repetitive and it gets boring. And then afterwards, after you get out, what can you really do with that skill? Uh, so if I would have known what I now know, uh-huh. I would have picked something different, which would have helped me when I got out. It would have helped me transition. For example, aviation mechanics or a, uh, a boat technician. Uh-huh. These are things that make you money when right. you come out. These are things that you learn. These are things they give you credits for. But when you're picking your job, you're like, man, I don't want to go learn how to do mechanics or I don't want to go learn how to do this because it's going to be difficult. So what's fun? Let me go shoot guns and let me go chase bad guys. I see. But that's not going to pay you later on. And if you're not going to be able to do that all your life. Right. Now, in terms of your forecast, if you could envision the future as of from here till about five years time, what are three things that you would have liked to accomplish by the time you arrive five years from now? Well, five years from now, I want to possibly own two homes. I want to buy my first home in a year. Um, and in five years, I want to own another. In, in five years, I want my nonprofit to be set up. Um, I want to have a platform where I can share my story and make this positive and impact lives. And I want to be a strong member of my church, which I'm 
I actively go to. And I want to keep doing that. And I want to be the leader that I was born to be for my family and from. That's outstanding, man. What's the name of your nonprofit? Uh, Veterans Freedom Fighters. Veterans Freedom Fighters. And this is an idea that you've been developing for how long now? It's been three years now. Three years? Three years. But three years. when I understand not everybody believes in you, not everybody wants to believe in your vision. So it took me to knock on a couple of doors, which led me to YouTube. It took me to knock on a couple of doors. And God's plan is is always the best plan. So I asked you, what advice would you give the young teenager who's thinking and exciting about joining the military? I'd like to close with the other end of the spectrum. Let's say you're talking to a veteran who's struggling with that transition um, and having a difficult time reintegrating themselves. What advice do you give the veteran? And what can you tell people who are veterans themselves um, how they could help or better understand the realities of that struggle that some veterans deal with? So veterans deal with uh, with the transitioning thing. Like I said, the military is a life, is a, is a lifestyle. So when you come home, it seems like not ev- anybody understands you. It seems like... Um, Unless you've been through what they've been through, they don't understand. But that's their mentality. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people don't have that mentality. So I'm going to talk to the people that do. When you come home, it's good to find resources. Whatever you feel inside that you haven't felt before, recognize it. Because the number one thing is that we don't recognize what we have. We don't recognize these symptoms. We don't recognize why I'm angry. We don't recognize why we're out of breath. We don't recognize why we're not sleeping, why we're irritable. And these are little things that can grow into other things, which is what happens. So... My suggestion to these veterans is to just talk to somebody, um, talk to a therapist, talk to somebody, and learn how to deal with whatever it is you're dealing internally. That way, when you come out, understand the way that people view veterans, it's not a, a positive thing. You're saying thank you for your service, but a lot of people view us as aggressive, as a danger. They don't view you as somebody that can protect you. They view you as somebody that can hurt you. So as long as they get the, uh, if they don't get to know you and see that, you're, you can be utilized as an asset from the outside looking in. They're looking at, at, at somebody dangerous. Right. So this is something that we have to change, especially if you're somebody like me that I have a deep voice, a strong demeanor. So if you know my background and you don't know me as a person, what do you think? I am? You're going to think of me as something that I'm completely not. Right. So my suggestion to these veterans is to seek help and to find to find an avenue. And um, there's always somebody that's been through what you've been through. And there's always somebody that, has been through worse things, but because you haven't got shot, it doesn't mean you, it doesn't mean you haven't been through worse things than I. Everybody has a story, and that's where I got to in my life. When I went into prison, I got to hear a lot of different stories, and it's not all what we think. Right. You know, a lot of people have very unfortunate situations, and landed landed there. So, my objective is for for these people to find the help that they need so they don't live there. Well, Emmanuel, I'd like to say on behalf of the audience and myself that it was a pleasure and a privilege to hear your story. I believe that uh, your mission and your transition to this mission is just beginning and uh, the best is yet to come, my friend. Yes, And uh, I know that this is the first of many opportunities where you're going to get to share your story and inspire others that get to have the opportunity to listen to you like I, like I did. 
So thank you very much for taking the time and opening up and being vulnerable. And uh, the best of luck to you, my friend. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. There you have it, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Emmanuel Hernandez and his story of rising, falling, falling further, and reinvigorating himself to rise again. The constant change in life was evident in his story and very powerful nonetheless. How many chapters do you think you live in a life? How often do you go back and think about, man, how far and long ago that chapter in my life is from who you are now? How distant does those moments feel? Well, then there's some chapters that stay with you and create a lasting impression on who you are and become the platform for where you either build towards becoming the person you're trying to become or it becomes the platform where you shatter and you end up regretting a life that you wish you could live again. In Emmanuel's case, there were many times where his platform shattered and shattered in ways that many of us could not imagine. But his courage and his bravery in deciding to join the military and his character in speaking up and being a protector for the voiceless allows him to be brave and to have the courage for himself to redefine those dark chapters and keep writing in his book in order to be the guiding light to help others who may be on the verge of giving up. Ladies and gentlemen, this is what this podcast is about. This is what this podcast is filled upon, stories and testimonies with this much power and residual impact. And we will keep providing you with stories like Emmanuel's and provide platforms for stories like Emmanuel's to be told, to be heard, and most importantly, to inspire. So that closes out this episode for today. We wish you all the best of luck. Until next time. Keep fighting, keep shining. And keep striving for what you are dreaming to become your reality. Take care.